This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 47, part two of the history of rim-to-rim hiking and running. In this episode, I will tell the story of the creation of the Black Bridge, the River Trail, the swimming pool at the bottom, and the earliest group hikes and runs across the canyon in a day in the 1950s and 1960s. Few understand the joy of hiking or running rim-to-rim. Run, come see what this river has done. Descending down into the Inner Grand Canyon is an experience you never forget. Episode 46 covered the very early history of crossing the Grand Canyon from 1890 to 1928. Trails that could accommodate tourists were built, including Bright Angel and South Kaibab trails coming down the South Rim. A tourist in 1928 explained, the Kaibab Trail is a fine piece of work, easy grade, wide and smooth, while the Bright Angel Trail still belongs to the local county and is maintained by it and is steep, narrow, and poorly kept up. Each person going down Bright Angel pays a toll of one dollar. Phantom Ranch was established in the 1920s. The same tourist continued. It is beautiful down here, now in the dusk, with the towering cliffs above and a mountain brook singing along in front of my cabin, and the weather is at least 20 degrees warmer than up on the rim where the ground is covered with snow. I am settled in a one-room stone-walled cement-floored cabin with a roaring fire in a cute corner open fireplace. Run, come see what this river has done. A scary swinging suspension bridge constructed in 1921 spanned the Colorado River bringing tourists over to Phantom Ranch. The North Kaibab Trail going up to the North Rim was completed in 1928. Multi-day rim-to-rim hikes had begun from both rims. How all this came to be by 1928 is told in episode 46. In 1926, about 140,000 visitors came to the canyon. As tourist traffic increased to Phantom Ranch, a new bridge was needed. The swinging suspension bridge was nearly impossible to cross when it was windy. High winds had capsized it more than once. In using the old swinging bridge, it was necessary for tourist parties to dismount in crossing, the animals being taken over one at a time. This caused congestion and delay at one of the hottest points on the Trans Canyon trip. One visitor mentioned, We crossed the Colorado River on a frail-looking bridge, one mule at a time, rider unmounted and the bridge waving up and down under the weight. Having gained so much weight since leaving home, I was obliged to cross considerably in advance of my mule. Construction began on a new bridge in early 1928 with nine laborers who established their camp at the confluence with the Bright Angel Creek. The crew soon grew to 20. All of the 122 tons of structural materials were brought down into the canyon on mules except for the massive four main support cables. 42 men, mostly Havasupai Indian workers spaced 15 feet apart, carried the huge 550-foot main bridge support cables down the South Kaibab Trail on their shoulders, about 15 pounds per man. Each of the four cables weighed more than 2,000 pounds. 
The location for the new bridge was about 16 feet directly over the older swinging suspension bridge. You can still see the path going around the cliff to where the old bridge was accessed on the south side. A tunnel on the south side was blasted out, running 100 feet long, allowing for a wider, direct approach to the new bridge. On August 3, 1928, the new Kaibab suspension bridge was complete. It would become nicknamed Black Bridge. It was rigid and stabilized by two wind cables. The bridge was purposely still narrow to prevent mules from trying to turn around. Today, it receives about 100,000 crossings each year. The Bright Angel Trail on the south side received an important facelift in 1932. The old Devil's Corkscrew area had been a constant problem from rockfall and washouts. Below Indian Garden, the trail was moved to follow Garden Creek and then to a totally new Devil's Corkscrew. The Park Service reported, Many of the sharp zigzags have been eliminated, grades have been greatly reduced, and a heavy rock guard wall has been placed along the outer edge of the trail. Even the most timid now should feel no hesitancy in taking this scenic trip. About 1929, a railroad man familiar with the trails walked from rim to rim in only five or six hours. However, he cut many switchbacks, running and sliding down much of the way. New residents moved into Phantom Ranch in 1929, a colony of beavers. They had been cared for by the park in Upper Bright Angel Canyon, but migrated down to Phantom Ranch and started to cut down many of the beautiful shade trees that had been planted there. The park rangers were at first patient with the small residents. Park authorities have felt that the value of the few cottonwoods they destroy in this locality is far less than the value of the beavers themselves and the evidence of their activities as a tourist attraction. There are few places along the main travel trails where the tourist can see close at hand old and new beaver cuttings. They eventually sent the beavers back up the creek, but they kept returning for many years. Years ago, I almost tripped over one of their descendants while running through the swampy area by the creek at night. In 1922, a small cable tramway was constructed upriver from Blackbridge that was used to monitor the river's water flow. It can still be seen today. Tourists from Phantom Ranch were at times giving thrilling rides in the tram across the river and back, even at night in moonlight. In 1930, Phantom Ranch was visited by about 500 to 600 people from June to September. For some people, the trip down the narrow trails is one of keen delight, while others, it is full of terrors which they have no desire to repeat. They have accommodations of a central dining room, of a large recreation hall designed for dancing, card playing, and other amusements. There was also a gas-powered electric plant, a small orchard of peach trees, fig trees, and an alfalfa tract. The cottonwood trees that were planted had grown to more than 50 feet high. A central restroom with shower baths was completed along with a sewer system. Prior to that, raw sewage was dumped into the Colorado River. A visitor mentioned, I would have slept well had it not been for the croaking of the frogs. In 1932, it was observed, Nearly every day we see long trains of pack mules going down through one rim to the other, but the rim-to-rim tourist trips are apparently few. For those who did venture up to the North Rim, they found the prices to be outrageous. A pound of butter was 40 cents, and a quart of milk was 19 cents. 
In magnificent natural beauty of the American national parks have gone many companies of the Civilian Conservation Corps to further projects which will guard this wealth of beauty against destruction by men and nature. The Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, was created in 1933 by President Franklin Roosevelt. This great nation will endure as it has endured. It was the height of the Great Depression, and millions of Americans across the country were out of work. America's public lands needed some work. And in creating this Civilian Conservation Corps, we are killing two birds with one stone. From 1933 to 1936, the CCC was assigned to improve the Inner Canyon. They worked 40 hours per week over five days. In return, they received $30 per month. CCC Company 818 arrived in October 1933 and established a camp that was located at present-day Bright Angel Campground. Company 818 is housed in six-man pyramid tents with a shack for showers, a newly completed mess and recreation hall, and a few odd tents for this and that and the other. They would work for three years during the winters at the bottom of the canyon. During the extreme summer heat of the inner canyon, the camp was moved up to the north rim each summer in the cool forest where they worked on other projects. These young men made the greatest impact, completing dozens of projects, developing the corridor trail region so it could be enjoyed for many generations. The average number of workers there was about 200. It was known as the most difficult camp to supply among all the CCC camps across the country. A massive amount of supplies except for water had to be transported to the CCC camp by a United States Army mule pack train down the 7-mile South Kaibab Trail. 50 pack and 10 saddle mules made the trip daily. They would carry nearly 6,000 pounds, including 200 pounds of coal on the mules. The mules also carried food, mail, and other supplies. Day after day, strings of sinewy mules are headed down trail and up. The CCC made improvements near Phantom Ranch, including the construction of a mule corral, two residents, two bridges over Bright Angel Creek, as well as installing a cable tramway west of the creek to gather driftwood from a sandbar on the south side of the Colorado River. The CCC's most difficult project was to construct the river trail. It took them two and a half winters. This trail made trips much shorter and easier using Bright Angel Trail to get to Phantom Ranch. It was carved out of the rock on the south side of the Colorado River and was said to be the most hazardous of any trails that had been built by the CCC in the park. They used five air compressors, jackhammers, and 40,000 pounds of blasting powder on a half-mile section of Pipe Creek. Two to six hours of steady drilling was necessary to drill one blast hole. Twenty to forty sticks of powder were used in a hole. Two boys working alternatively, a jackhammer man and a helper, were assigned to each hammer. At times in their work, they were suspended from ropes and life belts. The only serious accident occurred as three boys were working on a ledge. They were anchored by ropes. Then, without warning, the cliff slid off. Ropes supporting two of the boys snapped. They were carried down with tons of rock, down, down toward the rushing river. When their descent was halted, they were within a few feet of the river. 
The two were rescued from a mass of debris and hurried on stretchers to the camp hospital. For a time it was feared that their injuries would prove fatal, but they both recovered. The injured men were taken up the South Kaibab Trail on specially constructed litters. A strong, fast mule named Old Jim was used as an ambulance. A pipe or canvas stretcher was placed on a pack saddle two feet by six feet. Men and stretcher were then lifted to the pack saddle and fastened on in a position that the man's head was directly above the mule's ears and his feet over the animal's tail. Average time for the trip was four hours. Over the years, a total of 37 young men had to be transported out on mule litters. The river trail was finally opened on January 20, 1936. A veteran mule skinner took the first mule train over it. As a monument that will stand for generations as an accomplishment of the CCC, the river trail was built with tens of thousands of man-hours. Hopefully the next time you run on the trail, you will look carefully at their work and think of the hundreds of boys who worked on it. The young men needed entertainment while they worked for months in the isolation down in the canyon. They brought down a pool table to play. Part of it was too heavy for the mules. At a company meeting, more than 100 volunteered to hike up the seven-mile trail and help carry the pieces down on foot. They set out on Saturday morning, and by Sunday afternoon, the last piece was in camp. Early Monday morning, the table was installed, and it was said to be the best investment the company ever made. The first motion picture ever shown at the canyon bottom was featured in the CCC camp, attended by 105 men and guests from Phantom Ranch. Twice a week films provided by the army are packed into the canyon. They are silent, often ancient, yet eagerly awaited. The camp supervisor said, The boys enjoyed and appreciated this more than any one thing that could have been done for them in the way of recreation advantages. The blacksmith taught music lessons and established a band. Musical entertainment put on by the camp was enjoyed. With joyful voice, we all rejoice for CCC. Other activities included boxing, wrestling, spelling bees, and ping pong. A public address system was installed so they could hear the latest popular music records played during meal times. The CCC also did cleanup work and construction at Indian Garden. They removed the broken down structures there and built a new caretaker's cabin, trail shelter, and a mule barn with a corral. They built bridges across Bright Angel Creek and put up stone walls that are still seen on the North Kaibab Trail. The CCC built an amazing swimming pool at Phantom Ranch. It was 72 feet by 40 feet and 19 feet deep. They had to remove hundreds of massive boulders that the creek had deposited during floods over thousands of years. A tourist watched the construction and said, As if the 5,000 feet of the canyon weren't deep enough, they're digging another hole for a swimming pool. Diverted water came from Bright Angel Creek. It would be the centerpiece of Phantom Ranch for many decades. The pool was used until 1972 when it became a maintenance chore, was overused, and without chlorine experienced bacteria growth causing health problems. 
It was filled up, including many items, including hand-carved doors, a piano, oil-burning stoves, grills, the pool table, and items from the old blacksmith shop. The abandoned telephone line that today is seen along North Kaibab Trail was also the CCC's handiwork in 1934. Prior to that, 1922 phone lines had been hung from trees and were very unreliable. The new line stretched 25 miles between the North Rim and the South Rim. It first consisted of a single telephone line hung from 600 poles of 2-inch galvanized pipe that were all brought down by hand. One of the workers wrote, For a person to qualify for a job of this nature, he would need a degree in engineering, the strength of a mule, the endurance of a camel, the sure-footedness of a mountain goat, and the tenacity of a bulldog. In August 1936, a massive flash flood sent a wall of water down Bright Angel Creek that was said to be 16 feet high at one point through the box. It did extensive damage to the trail going up the canyon and destroyed the water pipeline going up to the north rim. The flood also damaged the North Kaibab Trail along the creek and it was closed. CCC enrollees went to work repairing the damage. In 1936, after the CCC camp was removed, the last project was to plant many cottonwood trees that are now enjoyed by those camping at Bright Angel Campground. During the 1940s, most of the young men from the CCC went to defend the country fighting in World War II. There were not many daring rim-to-rim hikers during that time. Nearly all the journeys across the canyon involved mule rides. Mule backing is recommended for all but top-conditioned hikers. A few hikers began to make the trek in multiple days and newspapers would make a big deal out of it. Tourists on the rim would gawk at unusual hikers who came up out of the canyon by foot. One hiker wrote in 1941, Arrived at the top to amusement and amazement of visitors who had been following our progress with interest and who roamed around us as we rested snapping pictures as if we were a newly discovered Indian tribe or something. In 1949, Harry Brown, an employee of the Forest Service, said he ran what is believed to be the first double crossing in less than 24 hours. By 1955, hiking into the canyon was being promoted with appropriate warnings about difficulty and heat. A person can pack a sack and descend the twisting Kaibab Trail on foot without guide or fee. However, the penalty for running out of energy within the canyon can be high. It is possible to telephone from any of the several stations along the trail and have a mule sent to carry a person out, but the charge is high. Travel light is a wise motto. Charlie Thornton of Tucson, Arizona should be recognized as the founder of Grand Canyon Rim-to-Rim Hiking in a Day. In 1947, he started to volunteer at the Arizona State School for the Deaf and Blind and established a wrestling program. Two years later, he was hired full-time by the school. When Thornton first came to the school, there was no physical education program available for the blind students, so he organized it. A student remembered, So many blind students would sit on the mat or on the sidelines. He would always try to get them motivated because they were afraid and hadn't been encouraged to try physical activity. The Lions Club built a gym and friends donated equipment such as chin-up bars and exercise bikes. Thornton built a running track with special posts and rails to guide the boys as they ran. NBC aired a news segment on the unique track. 
1953, Thornton established a hiking club at the school. Boys in the club became very fit hiking local trails in the mountains around Tucson and scaled some high mountains. Thornton came up with the idea for some of them to hike rim to rim across the Grand Canyon. In April 1956, Thornton had those interested run two miles each morning before breakfast on the special track. Thornton explained, In addition to keeping them in excellent physical condition, hiking develops their mental horizons, broadens their accomplishments, and gives them a rewarding outdoor experience. They're wonderful kids. In May 1956, Thornton, his sighted 12-year-old son, and a photographer led two completely blind boys and four partially blind boys down South Kaibab Trail destined for the North Rim. Thornton said the boys had an excellent sense of balance, timing, and seldom stumbled. Going down the trail, the completely blind keep in touch, usually hand on shoulder with the man ahead. They follow well. They are used to hiking single file. Rough terrain holds no terrors for them. If the path becomes unusually difficult or hazardous, the leader sings out, and the blind place both hands on the hips of the man ahead. It only took them two and a half hours to reach the Colorado River where they crossed the Black Bridge. Then they bathed their feet and patched their blisters on the banks of the Colorado. By noon they reached Ribbon Falls, showered under the spray, and ate lunch. They rested at a power plant near Roaring Springs that furnished electricity for the North Rim and to the station to pump water up to the North Rim. Climbing up was more difficult, and they used a rope. Here the leader fashions a rope with his waist extending back on either side. The boys line up between the ropes, then they grab the ropes with each hand and skillfully respond to any command or movement of the leader. The last five-mile stretch was, of course, grueling. They arrived at the top at 7 p.m. for an impressive 12-hour crossing. In 1958, Thornton led a second group of eight boys from the school across again and finished in 11 hours. In 1959, sadly, Thornton was fired from the school after 10 years of employment because of a difference of opinion over administrative matters. The public was outraged and sent in many letters of protest into the newspaper. Mr. Thornton has become a second father to the boys. Thornton appealed. A closed hearing was held with deliberations for four hours, and the firing was upheld because of, quote, insubordination. In later years, Thornton said he was fired because he did not have a college degree, although he suspected that envy might have been involved. The programs he developed for the blind children had surpassed those programs for the deaf, and that caused a rift. The school soon dismantled all that Thornton had built, including the gym and the track. In 1960, 22 hikers participated, including seven blind boys from the school. Some of the boys had previously made the trip. It was thought to be the largest group at that time to ever hike across the canyon. Thornton said of the boys, They seem to feel if they can cross the Grand Canyon on foot in one day, they can do almost anything. That year they were all together at Ribbon Falls at the hottest time of the day and then some faster hikers went on ahead. It was difficult to keep some of the most ambitious boys in check as the distance to the top got shorter. Two could stand the slow pace set by Thornton no longer. They lit out for the top on a run, and despite being more than a mile behind, they passed all the hiking club members but two. The hiker first to finish that year was Dave Gross in 9.35. They all finished by 13 hours. 
After returning home, a sighted participant was questioned why in the world anyone would take blind kids to see the Grand Canyon. He wrote, I submit that those blind boys saw more than do half the hurrying tourists, for I know that those boys smelled the fresh fragrance of the pine trees in the chilly morning breeze, heard the whirl of wind through the junipers, tasted the hot dust along the downhill trail, and shivered through the waist-deep crossings of Bright Angel Creek. In crossing the mile-deep chasm on foot, they achieved something few sighted visitors ever will equal. What about the first woman? Anita Harlan, age 22, studying anthropology at the University of Arizona, was the only woman in the 1960 Rim to Rim group and is believed to be the first woman to complete a Rim to Rim hike in a day. Harlan said, quote, I've hiked with men so long that they are used to me. There just aren't many women who like to go hiking, I guess. The climb up to the North Rim was very slow, but she finished her single crossing in 10 hours. In 1961, because Thornton could no longer train the boys from the School of the Blind, their association with the annual rim-to-rim hike came to an end. He said, Keeping their interest and enthusiasm high has become too complicated. The Southern Arizona Hiking Club in Tucson, founded by Pete Cowgill, can be credited for keeping the hike going and blazing the trail into double-crossing runs. Fourteen club members hiked in 1961, including one blind graduate from the school. Two older hikers, Bob Ward and Von Short, finished a single crossing in just over 10 hours. During this hike, Eber Glendening, 33, a civil engineer, and Bill Faust accomplished the first witnessed double crossing to, quote, prove that it could be done. In the heat of mid-June, they stopped at each Bright Angel Creek crossing to dunk their heads in the water. They had stashed some food and a flashlight at Phantom Ranch, but it all was stolen by the time they had returned. Glendening said, I was so mad that if those thieves had been around, I'd have tossed them into the Colorado River. Some tourists generously invited them for a fish dinner. Between us, we had split one can of beans and one can of pineapple, and were so hungry, we would have eaten anything that moved. They rested for an hour and a half and then pushed back up to the south rim. Reaching the Tonneau Plateau, they had to talk each other onward and upward and stopped every mile for a rest. It would take a half dozen wobbly steps before they got their hiking legs back. Glendening further added, When we slipped or stumbled over a water bar, we couldn't see because of the darkness. We tried to fall toward the inside. They finished in 20 hours, 40 minutes. We'll never do it again, but we're glad we did it once to prove that it could be done. Two others from the club finished a double crossing in 1962. Ted Marley and Joyce Wickham. Marley did it with a lighted cigarette hanging out of his mouth. The best time up to that point was about 19 hours. In November 1963, Alan Uriton of Williams, Arizona lowered the fastest rim-to-rim -rim run with a time of 3 hours 56 minutes, beating his previous best of 4 hours 15 minutes. It was written in the newspaper, with apt promotion, the run through the mile-deep chasm could become a unique sporting competition. On Memorial Day 1964, Charlie Thornton, age 52, ran a double crossing. He had always been the guide for the group and wondered how fast he could run across. His first crossing took about 6 hours 30 minutes. 
He rested for a half hour at the North Rim and then ran back down and reached Phantom Ranch at the 11.55 mark. There he filled his two canteens. His nourishment was a few caramels, some prunes and honey. After resting another half hour, he continued. He said, By this time the South Rim seemed to have receded at least 100 miles. I have never seen so many hikers in all my trips through the canyon. Now I really had to grit my teeth and keep going. A thousand times I said I would never try it again. He reached the top at 9.25 p.m. for a time of 15 hours, 55 minutes, which was the new fastest known time. He signed the register and plopped down on an air mattress in a waiting camper. He said, My last thought before drifting off to sleep was how long it would be before I would try it again. In 1992, a reunion of the first group of blind rim-to-rim hikers was held in Tucson, Arizona. Ghosts of bubbly teenage boys hiking across the Grand Canyon danced across the memories of the 30 people who gathered. Charlie Thornton, age 80, who had recently went through heart surgery, was honored. Richard Ferguson, 53, was 17 when he went on the hike. He said, It was physically very tiring, but mentally very exciting. Charlie wanted us to do kinds of things so we could be equal to sighted people who had these opportunities available to them. We never had the opportunity before Charlie. He gave me a lot of confidence and helped me learn to meet new people and try new things. Speaking about the blind school, Thornton sadly said, Now it's all gone. They've ripped up the gym and the track, and there's a new building up now. There's no sign of me ever being there anymore. But Thornton's students were living monuments of his presence. They were truly pioneers of Grand Canyon rim-to-rim hikers and started it all. In June 1993, Thornton went missing after he failed to return from a morning hike in the Santa Catalina Mountains above Tucson, Arizona. His car was found in the foothills. Sadly, his body was found at the bottom of a 40-foot dry waterfall. His hiking pack and water bottle was found at the top of the fall. A nice tribute was written about him in the Tucson newspaper. He did more for those kids than anyone had ever done before. Charlie Thornton was truly the father of Grand Canyon rim-to-rim hiking in a day. More will be coming in part three. Looking up at you from the bottom of the Grand Canyon, so small and so With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. Mm-hmm.